everyone and welcome to another episode of the virtual coffee break with the MSU Extension Dairy Team. As always, my name is Martin Mangual, dairy educator in the west side of the state of Michigan, welcoming you to this week's episode. Today, we have a good one. Senior educator Phil Durst will spend time with postdoc researcher Dr. Turner Schwartz and they will be talking about ketosis, but not only ketosis, but what is the impact of this metabolic disease in mastitis. So Phil, take it away. Today, we're going to talk about ketosis and its impact on mastitis. Now, ketosis is a concern for dairy farmers and it has been for years. But even in spite of that fact that it's been a concern for years, we've not mastered it. Yeah, sure, clinical ketosis may not be so prevalent, but subclinical is all too common. It occurs most frequently after calving, and the impacts of it go far beyond just the metabolic disease called ketosis. Today, we have with us Dr. Turner Schwartz. He is a postdoc research associate at MSU. He grew up on a small dairy farm in Pennsylvania where his parents still milk cows, and prior to receiving his PhD, he was a herdsman for five years. And I think this is interesting. He was a coach of the National Dairy Quiz Bowl teams from Virginia Tech in 2017 and 2018. Turner, it's good to talk with you today about the effect of ketosis on mastitis early in lactation and the role of inflammation. Turner, tell us some more. Thank you, Phil. As you mentioned, uh, ketosis is a prevalent problem in the dairy industry. In fact, we see about 40 to 50% of cows will have at least one blood sample in that postpartum period where they are uh, subclinically ketotic. And so the reason for this is because in early lactation, we see um, an energy shortfall or, or when cows are in negative energy balance and they have to utilize fat reserves to supplement, to compensate for that energy shortfall. And so they start mobilizing fat. And when they do that, we see increases in what we call NEFA or non-esterified fatty acids. Um, these NEFA then can travel to the liver and blood and they get partially metabolized um, to form ketone bodies called beta-hydroxybutyrate. So on farm, we can measure BHB uh, quite easily. Um, there actually are handheld meters where you can just take a small drop of blood from, from the tail vein and you can put it on a strip and put it in the meter and the meter will tell you what that BHB concentration is to get an idea of how much, uh, or how prevalent ketosis is in your dairy herd. Um, so we measure ketosis quite often in the dairy industry, and we define it as uh, a cow that has subclinical ketosis is greater than or equal to 1.2 millimolar BHB. So the, the handheld meter that you can use on farm can tell you what that subclinical ketosis uh, prevalence is within your herd. One of the reasons why we measure this is because we're trying to reduce the risk for other diseases. Um, if cows that are ketotic are at higher risk for other diseases such as dysplasia, abomasum, metritis, or mastitis, um, they're usually less fertile and they usually produce less milk and increased risk for culling. Turner, just uh, let, me, let me interrupt here a second because it is easy to measure this on farm and there are meters available, but some farmers aren't going to want to do that. I think that, that 
all farmers could monitor by simply drawing a blood sample from fresh cows, say from days three to 14, draw a blood sample, stick it in the freezer, and uh, when they've got 20 of those samples, send them in for analysis to find out in retrospect how many of those cows had subclinical ketosis. Is that reasonable? Uh, I think that is reasonable. Um, and I, I think we're seeing some farms doing that. There are other ways to measure, uh, to get an idea of the level of ketosis in your herd. So you can look at DHIA does this now. DHIA will measure BHB levels in milk samples. One of the kind of nice indicators is the milk fat to protein ratio in, in milk samples. Mm -hmm. So cows that are of ketosis tend to have a much higher milk fat to protein ratio because they're mobilizing more fat. So there's more fat in the milk and there's also producing less milk. So the, the milk fat gets concentrated in a sense in the, in the milk sample. So there are various ways to, to get to this issue of whether or not we have subclinical ketosis occurring in herds, whether by milk test, which is a direct test for BHB, or by looking at the ratio of fat to protein, which would be an indirect indicator of it, or by analyzing blood, either cow side or in lab. Yes, that's correct. Okay, so as I interrupted, you, you were talking about the the impacts that ketosis has on other diseases. Go ahead. So what I was just gonna mention is that it increases the risk for other diseases. So ketosis reduces dry matter intake. We're not sure if that's a direct effect or if it's just a downstream effect, but by reducing dry matter intake, you increase the risk for things like displaced abomasums. And we have some nice data that we'll talk about later, which shows it has effects on immune function. And by impairing immune function, you can increase the risk for other diseases like mastitis or metritis. Good. So we're really talking about managing the cow during this transition period, because that's the critical time in order for when the cow gets either set up for ketosis or actually navigates that time without being set up for ketosis. And so we're talking about the prepartum period, about three weeks, and the postpartum period, about three weeks. And dry matter intake is certainly a, a critical component of being able to manage ketosis during that time. We want to be able to make sure that we're not inhibiting the cow from eating in any way. And so that means that, that we have to have feed bunks that have feed in them for those uh, close-up dry cows as well as for the fresh cows, that there's always feed available for them and that the feed is good quality and that we give them the feed bunk space they need, which is about 30 inches per cow, 30 inches of feed bunk space per cow in the prepartum and postpartum period, and that also that we're not disrupting those cows by too often bringing in new animals to the group or by change that animal to, to a new group. Uh, those things disrupt eating behavior as, as well as other, other uh, activities. So we want to make sure that, that we're doing everything to maximize dry matter intake, including having plenty of water available to those animals uh, so that we reduce the chance of ketosis on a herd level. Now, individual level, we know that there are some things that cause ketosis or, or that predispose an animal to ketosis on an individual level. In fact, if she's had pre ketosis previously, it's going to predispose her to it. Or if she had, was overconditioned and therefore has a lot of weight loss coming into calving, uh, she's going to be predisposed to uh, ketosis. But we want to really concentrate on minimizing the herd factors that cause ketosis. That's exactly right, Phil. So there are even some data out there that have looked at the effects of ketogenic diets in humans. Um, so there has been a number of studies done why they look at 
increasing ketone bodies in humans and why that might be a good thing. Um, so ketone bodies are known to have anti-inflammatory effects. And so in human medicine, they've actually started promoting this as a tool to reduce inflammation, um, reducing inflammation involved in diseases like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's. Um, those are actually inflammatory disorders occurring in the brain. While we may not have those diseases occurring in dairy cattles, dairy cows, uh, I think the question kind of comes about is, what does that mean for dairy cows? What, what is this anti-inflammatory effect having um, and is it predisposing dairy cows to diseases such as mastitis? And, and, you know, going back to this ketogenic diet, I'm not on one. And yet people do that. People intentionally give themselves a, a ketotic state, I guess, uh, because of the benefits of that. So how can we say that there's not benefits to the cow of, of that ketosis? That's really a question that we don't um, have a very good answer for. There are cows that have what we call metabolic inflammation. And those NEPAs that I talked about earlier, non-esterified fatty acids, they're actually pro-inflammatory. And so they cause this kind of a, a low-grade chronic inflammatory state in that cow. And so we speculate, but we don't really know, but we speculate that that ketone body is helping to resolve that inflammation. Now, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I think is very debatable. And I think as you'll see, as we go through this uh, talk, there are certainly instances where it can be a very bad thing and it can predispose cows to other diseases. We've done um, some work looking at the effects of BHB in cell culture models. So we looked at the effect of BHB on macrophages. Macrophages are a critical, a very key immune cell that recognize pathogens and they can kill pathogens by phagocytosing them or by through other mechanisms. And when they kill bacteria, they also play a role in recruiting other immune cells into the mammary gland, for instance, to kill bacteria. So when you see a cow that has mastitis, that has clinical mastitis, and you see all the, the flakes in the milk, that's because of the immune response. That those are really the immune cells migrating into the mammary gland and killing bacteria. So what you're seeing is, is usually dead bacteria and immune cells forming those clots. And part of that is because the macrophages are recruiting immune cells from blood into the mammary gland to protect it or to kill the pathogens that are in the mammary gland. So I, I kind of like to think of macrophages as like the person that dials 911. So if you have some, an emergency situation and you need to get an ambulance out, somebody's got to dial 911 to get the ambulance to arrive at your place to, to take care of the emergency. So macrophages are kind of like that person dialing 911. They're recruiting other immune cells, immune cells that we call, that some of them are called neutrophils. Those neutrophils are like the first responders. They're like the ambulance arriving on the scene. And so then those neutrophils go in and they kill bacteria and they help clear that pathogen challenge. So both parts of that immune response are really critical. The macrophages, for first part, that engulf some of the bacteria, but also set the alarm, and then the neutrophils that rush in to, in order to, to complete the job. So both parts of that are important for the immune response of the animal to invading bacteria. Does BHB have some impact on that? Yes, BHB has impacts both on macrophage inflammatory responses. It, it actually promotes an anti-inflammatory response. 
and it also inhibits neutrophils' ability to kill bacteria. We think it's promoting essentially resolution to inflammation, which may be a good thing, but in the context of an infectious disease challenge, is probably a bad thing because now that we're impairing immune function, we're actually allowing for the bacteria to survive. So how did you test that, that idea, that question, your hypothesis? How did you test that? We did a live animal study with about 12 cows, six cows that were infused with BHB and six cows that were infused with a saline solution. We infused it for 72 hours to mimic a clinical ketosis. During that time period, we challenged the cows with Streptococcus uberus, which is a pretty common mastitis pathogen. So we put bacteria up into the mammary gland while we were infusing this BHB or saline into the cows to see which cow's immune response was most effective. Were the cows that were infused with BHB, were there, was their immune response impaired? Or was that anti-inflammatory effect from BHB actually a good thing and it helped them? Um, that was the question we were trying to answer. So we measured a bunch of things from this study, but the one thing that kind of stuck out to me is that the bacteria were able to grow. Their number in the BHB cows. So in the cows that were infused with BHB, the bacterial numbers got considerably larger than the cows that were infused with saline. So that anti-inflammatory effect from the BHB-infused cows seemed to impair immune function and it increased the risk and the severity for mastitis. Wow, that's pretty critical because that means that a cow that has subclinical mastitis or clinical mastitis is not as able to respond to the invading bacteria because the neutrophils can't do the job because of the BHB levels. Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's accurate. And we even kind of have more data to prove that. So we mounted a, a data logger that measures temperature on a cedar. So, you know, the cedars that have progesterone in them, our cedars did not have progesterone in them. They were just blank. But we put a cedar inside the cows and we measured body temperature every day for seven days. And when those cows were being infused with BHB, they were completely unable to mount a fever response. However, the control cows that were infused with saline, they were able to spike a fever and then resolve it. And that's really what we wanted to see. Wouldn't we say that not getting a fever is a good thing? So therefore the BHB is beneficial? So tell me why it's not a good thing that they did not mount a fever response. We speculate because they did not mount a fever response. This prevented the immune activation, which prevented the immune cells from killing the bacteria. So by not activating that, that fever response, the cow's body, body, her immune system, was enable defending of mounting that response to kill bacteria. Okay, so that fever response is actually a good thing then because it, it, it's, it's telling us that the animal is able to respond to the challenge. At least in this context, it, it, it's a good thing. Certainly, we don't want cows to have an extreme fever. We want to be able to control that. But within the context of this, it, we, we speculate that having a, that fever response, especially at the beginning of a challenge, at the onset of a challenge, is actually quite important because you need to mount a fever, you need to mount an immune response to kill the invading pathogen before it grows too much and becomes too severe of an infection. So this has given us some clues about what's happening in the cow's immune system when she's 
coming through this transition time and having higher levels of ketosis or just as being measured by by the blood that it's impacting her ability to respond with the immune response to a challenge a bacterial challenge such as strep uberus. that's correct <laughs> yeah the, you know the dairy team did something very similar to that uh in in looking at heat stress on farms just a couple years ago where we we used cedars that were not impregnated uh, we mounted the temperature sensor to that. Uh, we had a temperature reading every five minutes for, for five days, uh, which gave us a lot of data, too much data, which gave us a lot of data, but it, it was really helpful to understand what happened to the body temperature of those animals during that period of time. We were looking at it for a herd-wide issue in relation to heat stress. You were looking at it for an individual animal issue in relation to being able to mount a fever, not heat stress, but be able to mount to have a fever in response to a challenge of bacteria. That's interesting. That's correct, Bill. This has raised some additional questions. For instance, how can we attenuate inflammation in transition cows and at the same time not increase the risk for disease? If you look at BHB, yes, it's reducing inflammation, but it's also increasing the risk for disease. So now we're trying to find ways to reduce inflammation in transition cows without increasing the risk for disease. So we know that there are a few answers out there now. One of those is something such as monensin supplementation. This is pretty well proven. Uh, you might not know monensin. Um, the trade name is rumensin. It's a pretty common feed supplement that has been known to reduce BHB levels and it reduces the incidence of ketosis. It's pretty well known to also show not only a reduction in ketosis, but also a reduction in infectious disease incidents like mastitis or metritis. So kind of shows that nice downstream effect. Like if you reduce metabolic disease, you can reduce infectious disease. Part of my dissertation work that I did at Virginia Tech, we were looking at NSAID therapy and part of Dr. Bradford's work, who I work for now at, at Michigan State, um, was also looking at NSAID therapy. Could so, you and it, what NSAID uh, is? Yes. So, an NSAID is a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, such as aspirin or meloxicam. Uh, some people might know it as flunixamegalamine or orbanamine. Those are all different types of NSAIDs. And so, there have been a number of meloxicam studies that have shown um, increases in milk yield after administration. So if you give meloxicam after calving, you can increase whole lactation milk yield. Because um, it's reducing the inflammation that occurs associated with calving. Is that correct? That's what we speculate, yes. Um, we don't really know that that's, that's the exact mechanism, but we think it's reducing inflammation that occurs after calving but it also seems to have some evidence that it's improving immune function. So it's somehow, not only is it reducing inflammation and improving welfare, but also improving immune activation during this time period. And not only do we see increases in milk yield, but we also see reductions in somatic cell count. So there was a nice study done in Canada where they did a 2,600 cow study and they got either meloxicam after calving or uh, no, no meloxicam at all, a control group. And in that study, they found a reduction in somatic cell count by about 100,000 cells per milliliter in that first month post-cabin. 
So not only was meloxicam able to increase whole lactation milk yield, but it was also able to improve milk quality. That's pretty impressive. Is it labeled for that? And the answer to that is no, that's oh. the tricky part. Um, so meloxicam is not approved in the United States for use like that way. The only NSAID that's actually approved for use in dairy cattle, lactating dairy cattle in the United States is Flunix and Megalamine. Uh, unfortunately, the studies that were done with Flunix and otherwise known as Banamine, unfortunately, those studies have not been nearly as successful. So we're not really sure. It's, it's never quite as simple as we want it to be. Why would one NSAID work and another NSAID not? Meloxicam has been shown to work pretty consistently across three or four different studies, whereas Flunixin has been shown not to be able to replicate those results. In Canada, though, meloxicam is approved for use. So are there other things then that, that are being researched that uh, maybe have, have the same benefits? There's a lot of nutrition studies going on uh, that are always looking for these types of benefits. A lot of uh, feed supplement work. Uh, some of the work that I find pretty interesting it, that some of it's been done um, just recently is looking at reducing energy intake during the close-up period and how that actually improves metabolic adaptation in the postpartum period. So it's a little counterintuitive. You might think, well, you just told me we need to increase intake. We need to increase dry matter intake in the postpartum period for sure. But if you actually restrict energy intake by 80% of the NRC requirements during that last three weeks of the close-up dry cow period, you can reduce BHB levels in the postpartum period. So your nutritionist might not, um, your nutritionist might be suggesting to feed straw to your close-up dry cows. And in fact, I think that's a pretty common practice now in the dairy industry to feed straw to close-up dry cows. One of the reasons why they're doing that is to restrict energy intake a little bit. Not severely, just enough to help prepare those cows metabolically. Another reason why they're probably doing that is to give them more rumen fill, to give them more bulk, so that way they're less likely to get a DA after they can. But we've done studies where uh, they've reduced energy intake in that close-up period to 80% and actually improved metabolic adaptation in the postpartum period. That's pretty interesting because obviously we, we want to be able to treat all animals as, as a group and not have to worry about individual animals. And, and so if we can make the changes in, in the group ration that uh, would, would have less ketosis post-calving, that would be terrific. Yes, any type of change that we can make to help improve uh, metabolic adaptation should improve or should reduce the incidence of, of other diseases like DAs um, or mastitis or metritis in the postpartum period. Any type of improvement of metabolic adaptation will probably also improve inflammation around that time period and help improve health and reduce calling. So one of the things farmers could do if they make a change would be to monitor the impact on BHB levels post-calving. Whether or not they currently monitor BHB, if they started monitoring BHB, made a change in that, in that ration, and then looked at the impact on BHB, they would know whether or not it's a positive uh, change for them, as well, of course, as the incidence of disease that, that follows. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And I think monitoring BHB concentrations post-calving is a good herd management tool. And it's probably a more sensitive tool than just looking at the incidence of clinical disease, because you may have a handful of cows that get clinical mastitis, but we don't want to get 
we don't want to jump to conclusions too quickly. We want to make sure that we have you know robust data to justify those decisions. And looking at DHB concentrations, I think would be a good example of that. Yeah, the things that stick in our mind, of course, are always when we have two or three cases in a row, and that's all that sticks in our mind. And we need to, to monitor what's happening on a routine basis, I think is what you're saying. Yes. This is really interesting stuff. Obviously, it's, it's, it's a great importance to farmers because you know I've heard you describe the domino effect that, that results from ketosis. You wanna tell us about that? I like to characterize the, the transition period as representing the domino effect. So you think of the dominoes as a, a disease, like ketosis, for instance. Cow gets ketosis, then that domino falls, then the next domino might be a DA, the next domino might be mastitis, metritis, all the way up to culling or death. And so I like to think of that transition period as representing the domino effect. When one domino starts to fall, the risk for the other dominoes falling becomes greater and greater. And so by preventing that first domino from falling, we can pretty dramatically improve health in transition cows. Well, this is, this is great stuff and I appreciate your research on this and, and, and sharing some of that with us. Thank you guys for the opportunity to talk with you. Uh, I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for being with us today, Turner, to talk about this. You know, I, I appreciate what you're doing with cows, but I am not going on to know those ketogenic diets personally. They just do not appeal to me. So uh, you haven't talked me into that. And, and we'll keep working with cows to, to, to transition them better. Thanks for the research you're doing, and thanks for sharing with us. Thank you. Definitely a lot of information packed in today's episode. It was very interesting to learn how subclinical ketosis or other diseases during transition can have a lasting effect on the cow throughout her lactation. Luckily, as we learned today, there are strategies to measure and manage those problems. Thanks again to Phil and Dr. Schwartz for today's episode. Please join us next week for another episode of the virtual coffee break with the MSU Extension Dairy Team when Dr. Barry Bradford will discuss strategies to improve our management of calves with Dr. Steele from the University of Guelph. I'm sure it's going to be another episode packed with information that will be useful to our dairy producers. So please join us then. <laughs>